Well, guys, I brought up here a baton. I've got a baton in my hand. I don't know how many of y'all ran track, did a little relay, right? You got the baton. So what you do is in, in, in a relay race, you go, you run, and the person in front of you says, stick, and you go, and you hand it off to the next person, right? And that's why we have batons in track. And so we have together uh, five more weeks, five more weeks. Um, with me being the lead pastor at Cross Point Church. And in case there might be somebody here who doesn't know it, Sherry and I and our family, we are feeling called to go to Chicago to plant a church, start a church from scratch within the city limits of Chicago. And uh, we're kind of targeting a, a neighborhood called the Near West Side in Chicago. And so we're going there. What we're really excited about is that we now, uh, be, through prayer, the elders have, have graciously agreed, and the church has graciously agreed to actually help send us as missionaries to a mission field called Chicago. So we're going to still have a great relationship together, but no longer with me being the lead pastor. And so what was on my heart was, how do we spend the last five weeks together in our teaching ministry together? And in particular, what came to mind was, how do I want to pass off this congregation to the next pastor? Your race as a church is just beginning. You have a bright future. You are an awesome church. You are a church that has worship and leadership and life groups and serving teams. And so my job at this point in time is to prepare you for a handoff to the next pastor. And what a great privilege that is for me. And so we have a search committee that's already working. They're looking at resumes. They're listening to sermons. We're praying about the next guy and his family, whoever he is. God knows. He could come in four months. It might be a year. So you're going to have to stick together for whatever period of time that is. Um, over the summer, you're going to have great speakers starting in June. They're going to come, and we've got a great docket of preachers coming in, visiting preachers, and going to come in here, and they're going to preach the word to you, and your job is to come, sit under the word, listen, learn. Man, let God bless you. But how do I want to prepare you for the next pastor? And I'm going to put this baton on my desk with a note. It's going to say, what's up? And now it'll be more articulate than that. But I'll talk to the next pastor, and I'm really excited about him. And so what, I, what came to mind was, really, I want to tell you what I've been telling you for the last eight years. And it can be summed up in the five solas, the five solas of the Reformation. You're like, what's the five solas? The five solas are an ancient yet timeless way to sum up the Christian faith, and the gospel. The five solas are five Latin phrases that the reformers used to talk about what should distinguish the church from all other belief systems, what makes the gospel unique. And so the five solas goes like this. You got to say it with kind of some attitude. First sola is sola gratia, and that means grace alone. Then you say sola fide, that's a Latin phrase that means faith alone. You say, solus Christus. That means Christ alone. You say, sola scriptura. That means scripture alone. You say, soli deo gloria. That means the glory of God alone. What is the Christian faith in summary? What is the summary of all scripture? It's the five solas. We're going to spend one week on each of the solas. This week we'll be talking about grace. But it goes like this. Here's the way it goes. It goes, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Can I get an amen? amen. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's say it together. Let's say it. You ready? Go. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Now listen. I could do absolutely nothing better than to bless that next pastor with a congregation that knows what that means and that believes it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these solas. Sola five, that's the way I like to say it. Sola five. I want a sola five church. And I'm going to tell you why this is so important, why it's so important that we believe these teachings and why we believe they're from Scripture. So we start with sola gratia, which is grace alone. I am saved by grace alone. If you have a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 1. Probably the greatest passage on the grace of God that you could find. Awesome, awesome passage. And as you're turning there, here's the big questions. There's two big questions of all monotheistic religions. Two huge questions. The first question is, how do unholy people stand before a holy God and live? How do impure people stand before the pure, righteous, almighty God and live? That's the first question. The second question is, how do unholy people live for a holy God in an unholy world? In other words, a question of change or transformation. How does this happen? Now, religious answers are we work our way up to God through our own efforts and works. We, we self-rehabilitate. We, we, we practice behavior modification. And most monotheistic religions, that's what they are. They're behavior modification systems of thought. And even Christianity, we believe, got hijacked in the, in, the, in the ancient world, and it got hijacked by, by Roman culture and Greek culture and ultimately even Christianity for a while, it looked like that we believed that we could work our way up to God. How do I stand before God? And grace is a non-religious answer to that question. Because grace is not us working up to God. Grace is God coming down to us. What is grace? Grace is, let me describe it in three ways. Grace is the undeserved, unearned gift of God. That's what grace is. Grace is undeserved, unearned. That means that, number one, I don't deserve the gift of salvation. And number two, I've not earned the gift of salvation. That's the technical definition of grace. Here's a second way to look at grace. Grace is an undeserved gift given from an unobligated giver. So not only is it a gift, but it comes from somebody who didn't have to give it in the first place. God doesn't owe anybody anything. Can I get an amen? It's not like God's like, well, man, Bob. I must save Bob. I'm obligated to save Bob. God's not obligated to save anybody. Here's a third way to think about grace. Grace is pardon for sin. And grace is power over sin in the human heart. Grace. How are we going to stand before a holy, almighty God? Man, I'm telling you, nothing but grace alone can give us that gift. Nothing but grace alone. Can you imagine standing before God at the end of all time? The holy, righteous God of Scripture. The holy God of creation. God Almighty. Can you imagine standing before Him? And you've got to give an answer for your life. And you're asking, how can I do that? Only grace. I'll never forget when, uh, when Abby was a 
little baby, my oldest daughter, Abby. She's just a little, little girl, and I had to travel to Springfield, Missouri. We were living in Chicago at the time, and I went there, and I went there for the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame because my grandfather got voted into this Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. Hallelujah. Awesome, awesome moment. And I was at a hotel, and I decided to go to the gift shop to get Abby a gift. And so I got this cute little fluffy little purple bunny rabbit. And it was this great little stuffed animal, and I had this, and there I was. And, you know, when a guy buys flowers or a stuffed animal, I mean, you got to start strutting, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's for my lady, or, you know, yeah, man, it's for my little daughter, you know what I mean? And I stand in line, and in front of me is this gigantic man. And I was like, oh, my gosh. He turns around, and guess who it was? Marcus Allen. One of the greatest running backs of all time. And he's huge. Everybody say huge. I was just like, oh my gosh. Took my breath away. He said, how are you doing? And I was like, fine. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, 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 it's for my daughter. I, I, don't, I don't know. Now, now imagine what it's going to be like to stand before God Almighty. And what are we going to have in our hands? Nothing. And the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who's a little bigger than Marcus Allen. How do we stand before this God? stand there by grace and grace alone. That's the only hope we have. <laughs> An undeserved, unearned gift of salvation and forgiveness from God. We come to Ephesians 2. Let's look at this. Let's talk about what this looks like. We got to know this grace, man. We got to know this grace. And Paul the apostle who wrote the book of Ephesians, he starts talking about grace. Now, when you read Paul, he does not write in grammatically sound sentences. Can I get a hallelujah? When he preached, he was grammatically all kinds of messed up because he got so excited. And the Holy Spirit started working with him. And when you read Ephesians 2, it's like one run-on sentence upon another because he's talking about God's grace. But when you break it down and you kind of isolate the most important parts of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, here's what it says. It says, we were dead. But God made us alive by grace. We were dead, but God made us alive by grace. You say, I want to understand the depths and the dimensions of grace. Here's what you got to know. We were dead, but God made us alive by grace. Let's look at that. Let's look at those three things in their turn. First of all, it says we were dead in our sins. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You got to go to the bad news before you get the good news. You got to go negative before you can go positive. Here it is. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You can't, you can't talk about grace without talking about guilt. You can't believe in a savior if you don't realize that you're a sinner. You, you, you can't experience the joy of salvation if you don't know the misery of being lost. And beloved, this is not an evangelistic track. He says in verse 1, you were, everybody say you were. That means that Christians are to remember this. <laughs> this is for Christians to remember. But he also says at the end, 
He says, like the rest of mankind. So when he starts talking about sins and transgressions and desires of the flesh and body of mind and you're so guilty, he's not talking about just one segment or one race group or, or one geographical part of the world. He's saying all of mankind, all people are dead. When you walk out into that world out there and you look around, kind of like that movie the sixth sense i see dead people you said well, wait a minute now hang on now wait a minute because i see people who aren't christians and they're full of vitality and beauty and athletic gifts and they're able to build businesses and buildings and homes and cars and all these things they're really good citizens and they're good moral people that's true but the most important part of all human beings is dead and that is the soul and the spirit and dead towards god and that's the only part of us that lasts forever and everybody's going to last forever and when you're spiritually dead towards God, it doesn't matter what you accumulate in this world. You can't put that in a rider truck, and that rider truck is not going to follow the hearst. We brought nothing into this world. We're taking nothing out. We're just taking our soul and our spirit. We're going to stand before God. And we were dead. It wasn't like we were kind of spiritually like, I'm drowning. Throw me a Christian raft so I can live. No, 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 man. I was dead dead you were dead and some of you there could be somebody here who's feeling the full weight of the reality that you still are dead you're still dead I remember one time me and my buddies we we went down where we shouldn't have gone my mama always told me don't you go down by that river and guess what I did I went down by the river and there was woods and there was trees and there was shrubs and we rode our bikes down there and we'd walk in the river and, and then wade out and then wade back and then we'd go out into the woods. And one time me and my buddies, we were going out and we found in the shrubs a dead dog. Now can you imagine being a boy and finding a dead dog? It was actually pretty exciting. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. And my buddies were saying, I triple dog dare ya to touch that dead dog. And I was like, nobody dares me. And I went up to that dog and touched it. And man, I jumped back like it was on fire because it was so, what, stiff. Dead. Have you ever touched a dead human body? You ever gone up to a casket and it's an open casket, which by the way, when you come to my funeral, come to my funeral, you will not see me. Can I get a hallelujah? Not going to happen. We're shutting that sucker. That might have been inappropriate. I don't know. <laughs> what are you going to do? Fire me? Anyways. First funeral I ever went to was at a method. I'll never forget it. As, as long as I live, I will never forget this moment. Open casket. I'm a little boy. I, I don't know how old. I'm preteen. Preteen. And first funeral. Never been to a funeral before in my life. I walk up there, and that's an open casket. And I look in there. And the man I saw was not the man I knew. My dad said, do you want to touch the hand? And I reached in there, and I touched that hand. And there was no life in that body. What's Paul saying? We were dead. That means we were stiff towards God. No affection for God. Maybe we had a religious moment by walking in a church building. Maybe we heard a hymn and we got some goosebumps on the back of our neck. That does not mean we were alive towards the glory of God. We were born in this world dead. And you know what the Apostle Paul's doing with this text? He's saying, listen, come here. I want you, I want you to touch. I want you to touch the soul of a human being separated from God. I want you to to take a whiff of the stench of death. I want, you to, I want you to 
dissect the soul of a human being and look at the evidence because facts are stubborn things and there's evidence, there's stiffness to this deadness of our sin. And you can't talk about grace without talking about the fact that we were dead. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He describes what that means in verse 3 when he says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Flesh is not the, the fabric that covers our muscles and our bones. Flesh is the, the human nature and re rebellion against God. He says we were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. There's your evidence. There's your stiffness. See, sins and transgressions are the outward things that we do. We break the law of God. The law of God is the Ten Commandments. How many of y'all have lied in your life? Right? Transgression. How many of you guys have, have ever stolen something in your life? That's a little more difficult to admit. I've done it. I remember stealing a pair of glasses and my mama caught me. I had to go back to Whitewater and tell the manager. and had, It was terrible. Terrible. I stole the glasses. Never steal. It's a terrible sin. Don't raise your hand, though. Don't raise your hand on this next one. I really don't want you to raise your hand on this next one. How many of y'all have ever lusted after somebody? And Jesus said, you break the law of God. The moment you lust after somebody, you break the law of God, you're worthy of hell. That's transgression. We're outward failures. But why are we outward failures? The reason why, he talks about it. He says that the reason why we transgress and we sin outwardly and the reason why we're failures is because we're rebels on the inside. He says that, that we, we, co we commit desires out of the body and mind. Everybody say body and mind. So with our body, we take gifts from God and we abuse them and turn them into sin. We take the gift of sex, we turn it into lust. We take the gift of sleep and we turn it into laziness. We take the gift of food and we turn it into gluttony. We have sins of the body. But then he says that we have sins of the mind. You see, we're failures because we're rebels, because in our mind we're arrogant and prideful and self-righteous and unthankful and, 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 and un ungrateful. We were dead. Somebody here might even be dead today. Not only is the proof of our deadness in the transgressions and sins, but also in the fact that we follow the age of the world, he says in verse 2. He says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. That word course comes from a Greek word that means the age of this world. Jesus is bringing a new age of the kingdom of righteousness and justice and truth and peace. That's what Jesus is going to bring. But we're living in an age of what? Sin and injustice. And we were dead because we followed the course of this world, which can be summed up really easy. Like, what's wrong with culture? What's wrong with society? You know what's wrong with society? Is we're trying to build a life with God-sized results without the worship and the glory of God. We're trying to act as if God doesn't exist. And when I was dead in my sins, I followed that course. And you can follow that course into a, a wonderful, organized life of making money, or you can follow the course of that world and being a drug addict or an alcoholic or, or following worldly things that we think about. Either way, all people, without grace, without grace, follow the age of this world. We try to build great worlds and cultures without the glory of God. You're like, I'm so glad I came to church today. Amen. I'm just getting started. What are you going to do? Fire me. Anyways, the age of this world, sin, society, finally we were dead because we followed who? Satan. Easily tempted, easily giving in to his desires and his schemes and his and his his trickery. We easily took of the forbidden fruit. We followed Mother Eve and Father Adam in the original sin of following and joining 
the deceiver. And then he says, finally, we were dead, and therefore, what do we deserve? He says in verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath. Wrath. This is the final sentence on humankind, is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is not God throwing a temper tantrum, nor is it a disinterested kind of thing. The wrath of God is the pleasure of God to defend his holiness against all unholiness, to hate sin, to preserve his own goodness and righteousness. And the wrath of God is the full expression of those moments when we will be separated forever and ever in eternity. Hell is real. Final judgment is real. Eternal separation is real. We were dead. And that word wrath points to the fact that our sins has nothing to do with mistakes against other people. Has everything to do. We have sinned and we have sinned against God. We were dead. Paul's saying, reach your hand into that casket. and Touch it. We were dead. And you cannot convince a dead person to come back to life. People say, how are we going to make people Christians? Let's do a bunch of apologetics and come up with, let's marshal together all the intellectual arguments we possibly can. You might as well convince a dead person, hey man, you know, the heart should beat and like blood should go through the veins and then you would come back to life. Like, Like you're talking to a dead person. And a dead person is going to look at the clear evidence for God in creation and in redemption and deny it because they're spiritually dead towards God. So how in the world can a dead person come back to life? Guess what? It's called a miracle. That's why Jesus allowed Lazarus, his buddy, to die was to prove what has to happen in the soul of all people. Jesus has to stand before the tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. And only by the word of Jesus and a miracle of Jesus can a human being come alive to God. You can't talk about grace in a sentimental way. You got to talk about grace in the context of sickness and death. And some of us, we didn't have any affection or feeling for God because we were dead. We were dead. I was dead. You were dead. But grace says in verse 4, hallelujah, look at it, Ephesians 2, says in verse 4, let's read it, not only were we dead, but God made us alive, hallelujah, it says in verse 4, but God, but God, oh, if we were Pentecostal, I'd just go off on that for 10 minutes, I'd be, but but God, but God, you know, and like we would all look at each other and go, but God, say to each other, but, but I won't do that, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, love it, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, praise God. God comes down when we couldn't go up. God makes us alive when we were dead. God gives us sight when we were blind. Hallelujah, this is the good news which is grace alone. Sola gratia. You got to say it with some feeling. You got to say it like like with some attitude. Sola. Everybody say it. Sola. Gratia. I don't know why I did that. All right. What's he talking about? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual rebirth. He's talking about being born again. And Jesus looked at Moral, self-righteous Nicodemus and said, Nick, Nick, Nicky, your religion ain't going to save you. Your good works aren't going to save you. You must be born again. John 3, 3. You must be regenerated. 
get the same breath of God that breathed into the nostrils of Adam in Genesis chapter 2 is the same breath of God that's got to breathe into our dead soul and give us life. But God, God made us alive. And I was born again. And it literally is a born again moment. It's like, it's like you just, your eyes are open. Your heart is open. You're no longer hardened towards God. You suddenly go, oh my gosh. And at first, it kind of is a bummer deal. It's like every, I have never, Sherry went through that hard labor. And that was hard on me as well. And, and every time one of my beautiful girls came out in the world, they didn't come out smiling. They came out what? crying because they liked being in that womb they were used to that you know what I mean and they came out and they were crying and and when we're born again we come out crying because we realize oh my gosh I was dead I'm guilty the first moment is conviction and guilt and shame and we cry out and God slaps us makes us breathe hallelujah praise God I might be going too far with that but you know what I'm saying and we're born again and if you can believe in Jesus it's because you were born again regeneration by the way precedes faith but it's as simultaneous or it precedes faith kind of like a, a match strikes its box and that 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 striking is regeneration and then the spark and the flame and then we believe in Jesus Christ but we can't believe in Jesus unless our heart is born again that's grace grace is regeneration grace is a miracle grace is a miracle it's like what what does that look like what does that look like I mean seriously like what's that like if I've if I've if I've touched a dead body, what would, what would being born again be like? A guy by the name of John. There's a guy by the name of John. He was born in 1725. Terrible, terrible person. He was a sailor, midshipman. He started out because his daddy was a sailor before him, and he cussed like a sailor. He was so good, though, at cussing that even sailors reported that he could really cuss. They called John the great blasphemer of God. All he did was spend his life taking the name of God in vain, and when he ran into believers, he especially really kicked in that taken to God's name in vain. He was so bad. This guy was so bad that the captain of his ship had him strict naked before 350 sailors and had him flogged eight dozen times. John became so furious at his captain for this that he planned a great scheme of murder-suicide. He was going to murder his captain and then take his own life by jumping overboard into the water. This guy was so vile. He was so evil. He was so clearly dead. And one time, in a miracle, there was a storm. And the storm came, and for the first time in John's life, he cried out to God, and he said, God, have mercy. And in that moment, he realized... I need God. He started reading the Bible. He studied evangelical doctrines. He decided he believed in evangelical doctrines. And then in one moment, he came alive to Jesus Christ. He believed in Jesus. And then he realized that he was a part of the slave trade. That he was a part of, of the buying and purchasing of human beings and selling them into slavery. He would eventually... Join William Wilberforce and help the abolition of slavery in England. His name was John Newton. And he wrote the greatest hymn that's ever been heard. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And he became a pastor 
parish priest in the Church of England and served his congregation for many years, John Newton. That's what it is to be made alive by God. That's the miracle. You're like, well, I mean, I don't... I mean, I wasn't worldly. I never cussed. I never took God's name in vain. I was moral. I grew up in the church. I I didn't do all those bad things like all those testimonies. Well, let me tell you about another guy. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon grew up with hymns being spoken over his crib. Charles Spurgeon grew up in a family tradition of beautiful Puritan theology. Beautiful Puritan theology. By the time he was six, he was reading John Bunyan, John Flavel, Thomas Watson. He was reading some of the greatest Puritans ever. He was so precocious, so smart, so intellectually engaged. He understood everything. His grandfather was a preacher. He came up in a tradition of great preaching, much better preaching you're hearing right now. I can tell you that right now. He grew up in all this tradition, but he could not believe in Jesus. He couldn't do it. His heart remained hard towards God. He had no warmth for God. And at 15 years old, on a snowy morning in London, he's walking down the street. Sunday morning, he's trying to find any church that might be open during a snowstorm. We would have closed our doors because that's just what we do at Cross Point. Can I get an amen? But there was one church open. It was a Methodist chapel, and he walks in, less than 15 people. The preacher couldn't even make it. The preacher couldn't even make it that Sunday. So somebody gets in, and here's how he describes his moment of being born again. As he goes into this church, there's about 15 people. And he says this, a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick by his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. His text was Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Look unto me, and ye be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. And he began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just look. Well, a man not even need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. I, he said in his broad Essex, many a ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me and rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. And when he had got about the length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, young man... You look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck. And he continued, you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could shout, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now imagine that. That's, this, is, this is a guy who grew up with great preaching. And it took a terrible sermon on a great text for God to make him alive. By the time Charles Spurgeon was 17, he was pastoring his first church. He became one of the greatest preachers to ever preach the gospel. 
we were dead, but God made us alive by grace. You're like, man, that's not my story. I wasn't either secular or religious. I'm just kind of middle of the world. In fact, I'm an intellectual. I'm an intellectual. I, I, don't, I don't think about these archaic things like religion and five solas and reformation and Catholic. And I, I don't care about any of that stuff. I want intellectual philosophy. Let me give you one more story. An intellectual by the name of C.S. Lewis. An atheist. He said, I was an atheist. I didn't even believe in God and I hated God for not existing. I hated him. He started studying Christianity and here's how he was converted. He jumps in with his brother to go to the zoo. They're riding to the zoo and here's what he said. He said, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. He was dead. God made him alive. How do people become Christians? Not through evidence, not through persuasion, but by grace alone. By the preaching of the word by Scripture, by the clear statement that Jesus died for our sins and defeated death. And those who are called to be born again will come alive in God's good time. And the evidence of that grace is when they believe in Jesus Christ. We were dead, but God made us alive by grace. Hallelujah, by grace. Let's close out the text. Let's ask, why is it by grace? Look at verses 8 and following. Ephesians 2. Verses 8 and following. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I love this part. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Can John Newton boast? Can Charles Spurgeon boast? Can C.S. Lewis boast? Can we boast? No, we can't boast. It's all of God. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. I love that. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them by grace, by grace, by grace, and not by works. Now, the question is, why? Why does God do this? Why does God... Save people like John Newton, a slave trader. Or Charles Spurgeon. Or C.S. Lewis. Or the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Talk about being born again. Damascus Road, a light shone. Why does God do this? It says there in verse 10, I think this is the key. For we are his workmanship. Everybody say workmanship. That word means something like masterpiece. We are a portrait of what God can do. In other words, the reason why God does it is to show himself off. It's for his glory. God takes the ruins of our sick soul and he begins to deliver us from Satan and from sin. And he causes us to begin to have the power to, to become Christ-like. And we begin to follow Christ and look like Christ. We begin to be shaped by Christ. And, and we become a portrait of his power. That God can do big things in little people. God can do righteous things in unrighteous people. God can make holy what was unholy for his glory so that angels and creation and everybody will one day say what an awesome and mighty God we are his portraits one of my favorite theologians a guy by the name of John Stott man he went to this theological school he was kind of really smart and British and stuff and spoke like really smart and he was this great theologian, but when he was in theology school at Cambridge, he had a principal who was retiring, and they, they had this big ceremony for the principal, and they unveiled this big painted portrait of himself, and the principal went up and said about the portrait, many years in the future when people see this portrait, 
They will not ask, who was that man? They will ask, who was the artist who painted the portrait? And you and I, our life is not about ourselves. It's about the artist. Can I get an amen? That's what it does. We're about him. We're about reflecting his grace. We are a portrait of the artist. We were dead. But God made us alive by grace through faith. Ultimately, the instrument that God gives us to receive this grace is the humble reception of Jesus into our life, into our life. Now, that was my introduction. This is my sermon. Why do I want to hand off a church to the next pastor that believes that it's by grace alone that we are saved? Why is this so important? Let me give you three reasons. Here's three reasons why this is so important for a family, for a church, for a community. Number one, grace gives us humility that heals us of our arrogance. Hear me now. Why do theologies drift from grace? And theology always drifts from grace. The reason why is because by nature we want to take credit We want to think that the reason why I have grace is because I'm more deserving than another person. And you and I are no more deserving of of grace than anybody else. If we were deserving of grace, then we would no longer need grace. We could show God our works and our own glory. Listen, a church must believe in grace alone to get along, to humbly serve together, to be a part of life groups, to be a diverse body of people economically in age, young and old, black and white. doesn't matter the differences. It takes grace because grace humbles and heals our arrogance. You want to know the secret to a great marriage? Let me hear it. Grace. Because you got a man and you got a woman. Already there's all kinds of funky differences there. Can I get a hallelujah? And she's spaghetti and I'm a waffle. You know, she's from Mars, I'm from Venus. You know, that's not true. I'm sorry. Email me, fire me. Anyways, I don't know. But you get the, you get the difference. That's not even to take into account. She's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. So she wonders why I talk so much. And I wonder what she's thinking because she never talks enough. What does it take? It takes grace. You can't be arrogant in marriage. You can't be arrogant in a church. I don't want the next pastor coming. And you're not arrogant, by the way, Crosspoint. You're so humble. I just want you to stay humble. I I want that next pastor to come in here and go, what a wonderful, unified people. Why? Because they believe that it's by grace alone that makes them right. Religious, spiritual environments are dangerous. Everybody say dangerous. Because you're dealing with God and truth and righteousness And it's so easy to fall into self-righteousness. That's why Paul is telling Christians, he's telling the church, you were dead, but God made you alive by grace and not by work so that no one can boast. Humility that heals our arrogance. Here's the second thing. Why do we need grace? So that we can have confidence that heals our insecurities. You guys have heard me preach this a million times, haven't you? And there's a reason why. Because just like arrogance destroys community, so does insecurity. Insecurity can look like anger. Insecurity can look like, it can look like so many different things. But you're loved. Don't you see the rich kindness of God? You're so loved by God. He gave you his son. He died for you. You are so loved. You don't need any more love. You're good, man. You believe in Jesus. You're good. You belong in this room. Can I get an amen? Yeah, you, were, you, you had a stench about you before Jesus. But hallelujah, it's all gone now. You can come in here. It's all good. 
God gives you stable ground in his work for you so that you can stand there and go, here I am. I'm not arrogant, but man, I'm not defeated. I belong here. Here's the final thing. Not only humility and confidence, but purpose. Because an aimless existence is a bummer deal. And you know what grace gives us? Purpose. To glorify God. (laughs) To live for Him. To serve His purposes. To be on mission. I want the next pastor to come in and sense that this community is on mission. I want him to come in here. I want him to see you in life groups on mission. I want him to see you giving on mission. I want want him to see you worshiping on mission. I want him to see you that you really believe that we exist to make more and better disciples for Jesus. You're on mission. This ain't a maintenance program. It's not a vacation. It's not a recreational activity. We are on mission. Hallelujah, because we were dead. But God made us alive by grace. We're on mission. We're living for the glory of God. And when you're a family and a marriage, what do you need? You need purpose. When you're a church, you need purpose. You need a mission. You need direction. And grace gives it to you. Hallelujah. Praise God. See, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. Say it with me. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. One more time. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this grace. Thank you for grace, grace that opens our eyes, grace that forgives and saves, grace that shows us your great love for us. We pray it would heal us and help us and drive us along. God, we thank you for grace. And Lord, if there's somebody here who needs to be awakened, like the Apostle Paul or John Newton or Charles Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis or like myself or any other Christian, Lord, awaken them. Strike the match. Give them life. Cause them to come out of their tomb and come alive to God. Holy Spirit, pour out your grace and love that saves so that we all can have the confidence and the humility and the purpose that you made us for, for your glory. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.